in, in terms of what he saw. Um, that's why, I, you know, if, if we could give you a vision right now of what's going to happen in the next 50 years, would you want it? Yeah, but then you'd know what to expect and, and when to put your two-year supply together. And no, yeah, but you would know what was coming. So, no, we don't want to see it because then we get all the disturbing parts of that as well. You're, and I think most of us would be that way. Well, Nephi saw it. So here's so what we're getting is. Nephi looking down through the corridors of time and, and what directions he's going to give. But today we're going to talk about an interesting thing because he's actually going to give us parts of two sermons. One directed to us, but another one that we think uh, was delivered in person to his people. And, and what a difference that makes in a couple of things. Um, so, in order to set that up, let me just remind us a little bit... Uh, because we're going to actually see two different styles, or we've seen, especially in the first part of the Book of Mormon, two different styles of how we get this transition of how uh, Book of Mormon prophets are prophesying. Okay? So, the old style, in the old world Hebrew, and we're talking about the days of the prophets, and so it's uh, Enoch and Abraham and, and Noah, right up to about Isaiah. Isaiah's maybe one of the last ones here. It's all about visions and symbols and allegories. And a good example of that is the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses is very, very symbolic, isn't it? What to expect. You can read in, put in the information. And a good example of that one we have in the Book of Mormon, and that's Jacob 5. Who wrote Jacob 5? Who wrote the, pal- the, palagory, the allegory <laughs> of the vineyard? Right off the top of your head, without peeking. And I know we're about Zenith. two weeks away. Zenus, thank you. And Zenus was a an old world prophet. So we're going to get this beautiful allegory, and now you have to study it. And, and again, that allegory and the symbolism is what the old Jews understood. It's what they thrived on. It's also the thing that enabled them to slip out of some responsibilities, because then they can interpret it however they want. That was the downside to it. Okay? But it's all about symbols and algorithms. And so that leaves it open to interpretation. And it was directed to Israel mainly to the promised people. So the Old Testament, one of the reasons we struggle so much with Isaiah and Old Testament is that there's so much of this allegory and symbolism in it. And we're going, well, we don't understand the references. We don't under- we're reading Proverbs. What's he referring to? Um... And, and so, but it was directed to Israel, not to us. The other thing, of course, that we know makes this tough is that then when we get about 150 years out from um, Lehi, then we get Josiah and his scribes, and they start pulling out and, and pruning and rewriting some things in Deuteronomy and to, to make it... So that it's just going to be about the temple and the law. And we're going to take out things that we don't necessarily like. For all the best of purposes, we want people to study the Torah and be faithful. But they did do a lot of rewriting. So, that's the world that that Nephi is going to come out of. Now, Nephi now has to write to who? 
Partly, first of all, to His people, and then to us. Are we going to get all of this stuff? Not much. So He's got to change the style about the way that He's going to write, and this is the style that will then be handed down to, to Jacob and Enos and down the road to Almas and Mormons and Moronis down the road here. Okay. So under Nephi's new world, is he going to write in visions and symbols? He's actually going to, because it's directed to Israel and the Gentiles, he's going to do it, he's going to delight in, in writing in what? Plainness. 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 And in fact, remember, Dad has the tree of life thing, and here's all this wonderful symbol, in it. and we're going to finish today with a different, a different look at the tree of life that I, I realized this week. But here's Dad having the symbol, and, and it's rich. And, and Nephi, by his very nature, then says, I, I want to see the tree, when he talks to the Spirit, I want to see the tree that my dad saw, and I want to know what? What it means. What it means. I want the interpretation. Don't let me just put my own view on it. Show me the tree and give me the interpretation. What does that mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? What is that? What am I supposed to get from this? And let me write it down so that people down the line will go, no, let me tell you exactly what the rod was. Let me tell you exactly what it meant. So he's going to write in plainness and in boldness. When you look at the word bold, plainness, in, in Old Testament terms, it almost means um, um, frank, unmistakable. Uh, it almost border on harsh. It's going to be so bold, you can't miss it. Plainness means I'm going to hit you hard with it. And then I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm telling you. And there will be no way you can walk away from this discussion saying, I didn't know. He said, I done told you. <laughs> and told you and told you. And I'm, and I'm taking out some of the allegory stuff. And if I use any visions and allegories and symbols, I will then give you the interpretation. And then, as Moroni says, on Judgment Day, I will tell you I told you. <laughs> You will be left without excuse because I done told you. Right? So he's going to do it in plainness and in boldness so there's no misunderstanding whatsoever. Now, the problem with this is that it angers the wicked. Oh, the hubbub that President Nielsen stirred up a few weeks ago. When the, when the um, direction came in terms of how we are, uh, how we're handling uh, those that are being, the kids that are being born into same-sex marriages, the church had to make an extremely painful, difficult decision. And I can't even imagine how these brethren wrestled with this idea about saying, do we put these kids in a very difficult position of saying, they're born into a same-sex marriage. We're then going to bring them to primary and, and have them be members and all this kind of stuff. And then they're going to have to go back and, and the disruption and potential struggles that's going to create in their families. Very painful decision to say we're going to hold off baptizing them until they're 18. I thought it was an act of kindness. It's a very, very much an act of kindness. Okay? 
But how's that been received generally? That's a total misunderstanding. Holy. Exactly. And and the but the blowback on that and then when they said, well, this was this was kind of well, maybe we can understand it if it's like this is like small p policy. This is a policy thing. It might change, and, and, and it's not going to be done as a first presidency statement. It's just a policy shift. It could change next year. The brethren are old. Maybe some of these guys will die off, and they, they will catch up, and then we'll do that. And darn that President Nelson. He comes out and says what? This was a revelation. Whoa, boom. That's kind of obnoxious, isn't it? Kind of bold, kind of plainness does that. For us to say to the world, here's something we believe is wrong. When we say what you're doing is a sin, what we do when we're saying, when we're very clear and bold about what is right and what is wrong, the, the truth is going to take that, the, the wicked are going to take that to be hard. And it will anger. And it will divide. And it will split. And it will. I find it, <clears throat> I find it interesting the contrast between how we are to rescue the one. And that, that's with love and patience and um, inspiration and you know just tons of love and inviting and those kind of things. And, it's, um, and this one, it's, uh, it's straight to the point. But we can still be loving and encouraging yeah. around those difficult well, things. Well, that's why I say I think it's just fascinating. <laughs> I, I get, my heart goes out to those brethren that wrestled with this saying, everything we're about in our missionary work and effort and energy and Sabbath day observance and everything is all about finding, converting, retaining, blessing, teaching, keeping, and loving, and loving. And as it is kind of with the polygamists, there are going to be a group of people that we're going to hold off baptizing until they're 18 so that, we, so that the conflict is not there in their family. Wow, that's hard. So, anyway, this, this plainness thing is going to anger the wicked. It, it, it's a, it draws a dividing line that is very harsh. Well, not harsh, stark. It maybe is the word I'm looking for. Okay, questions on that? Make sense? Yeah. So, did you say that children of polygamists, parents can't be baptized? Right. That is that is the other group for the same problem. How do we teach them in young women's and then send them home to say, my 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 teacher says that you're wrong. My my teacher says you're you're living in sin. We're not going to do that to them. That that's unfair. So. When you're talking about the truth and being plain and bold, that's what it is. It's plain and bold. The truth never has to explain itself because it is the truth. Isn't that true? Yeah, it is true, right? (laughs) So that's what angers the wicked is because they're having to face the truth about the reality of what the actual context is. Yeah, and it's kind of right there where you can't miss it. And that's why I say in some ways it would be nicer if we just talked in metaphor and slightness and... You know, and um, you know, if we're in a lot of the church is trying to say we're losing membership, so we're not going to really condemn, you know, uh, sleeping around. We're just going to say you probably shouldn't do that. You know, probably you need to stay true. We're just not going to condemn it too much. 
And that's where the misunderstanding comes into play. And they can read into the, their own interpretation. That's correct. Exactly right. So, with that, with that as a backdrop, then, let's take a look as, as Nephi is preparing. How they got this photograph of Nephi, I think, is amazing. <laughs> if, if we look, let's turn over to 2 Nephi 25. And, and here's the plan. I, I, I put this in the heading on here. So this is the beginning of his final discord, and there's two sermons. Chapters 25 to 30 appear to be a written um, sermon, and he's writing, and he's doing an interpretation too based on, I, I used all this Isaiah, let me tell you what it means. Let me break it down to you so there's not a mistake about what Isaiah was trying to say. Again, if Isaiah, if, if Nephi is going to use allegory and he's going to use Old Old Testament stuff, he's going to give you the interpretation by it. And that's what he's doing in, starting in 25. And we talked a little bit about that last week in 28. And then 30 and 31, we think, is a spoken sermon that then was recorded and then put in here. And we get the same thing with Jacob. Jake, when we get into Jacob... Uh, next week, we're going to see another spoken sermon at the temple to the people that has application to us. So we're going to have two kind of back-to-back -back written sermons. And so all this is going to be done in the spirit of uh, boldness. Now, so he's going to say here, let me back this up here. Uh, verse 5, I, My soul delighteth in the words of Isaiah. I came out of Jerusalem... Mine eyes beheld the things of the Jews, and I know that the Jews do understand the things of the prophets. They get the allegory. That's how they were taught. That's what they grew up with. They understand it. There's none other people, none other people that understand the things which were spoken unto the Jews like unto them. They get it. What's he kind of saying? And you will struggle. They get it. You're going to have a harder time. That's why you have me. He says, I will write it. I will help you interpret it. Because you're not going to get it. Yeah. You know, that's a little bit like the, the eunuch. Um, in, the, in the New Testament, he says, how can I... I don't understand. This, this is Isaiah. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Okay, Philip says, well then, let me provide the, let me provide the explanation. Okay. Okay, uh, say with me that we're taught under the manner of the things of the Jews. But, behold, I, Nephi, have not my, taught my people after the manner of the Jews. I myself have dwelt in Jerusalem, and I know the regions concerned about. And I have made mention unto my children concerning the judgments of God. Uh, verse 7, but behold, I proceed with my own prophecy, according to my plainness. In which I know that no man can err. Nevertheless, in the days of the prophecies of Isaiah shall be fulfilled. Men shall know of a surety. At those times, though they're coming to pass. They are of worth unto the children of men. And then he's going to go in and he's going to give us. Now comes this long. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, verse 12. They're going to have wars and rumors of wars. Uh, 13. They will crucify him. They'll be laid in a sepulcher. For three days, he's going to rise from the dead. 
You can't miss this one, right? Where is he getting this from? His own vision and from his writings in the brass plates, right? Where is this in our Old Testament? It's been removed. It's one of the reasons why it is. If you talk to, How many people out there do you know where they say, <laughs> I like the New Testament because it's about love. And the Old Testament, I'm not sure who that God is. I have a hard time trusting the God of the Old Testament. He seems to be mean and arbitrary and capricious and people are dying and being slaughtered and all kinds of crazy stuff is going on. Let's get an army together. Let's tell them that they have to be circumcised and then we'll attack them the next day. And then we'll win. And you go, you look at that, oh, this is crazy stuff. Well, yeah, because it was because of this kind of stuff that makes it hard to, to uh, tear it apart. Okay? They're going to crucify him. He's laid in a sepulcher. Uh, the Messiah will be raised from the dead. The Jews are going to be scattered. Babylon shall also be destroyed. The Jews will be scattered. And once they've been scattered, you know, look at how specific he is on all this. Okay? According to the words of the prophet, the Messiah cometh 600 years from the time my father left Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you almost the year when he's coming. And I spoke plainly that he cannot err. That's important to him. And then look at this, 22. These things that I write will go forward from generation to generation. Yahuda le'olam teshev v'erushalayim l'dor v'dor. Generation upon generation, these things will go back to Jerusalem. Okay, As long as the earth shall stand, they shall go according to the will and pleasure of God. Uh, and the nations who possess them shall be judged. Whoa. Wow. They will be judged from... Because you can't get out of this. It's plain. Now. Then we get to this part. And this has caused no end of concern among members of the church. This little verse. Because he says, I'm going to tell you plainly who we were and what we did and what we believed. Here's what we believed. Verse 26, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, we write according to our prophecies. Why? What's the purpose for all of this? That our children may know what? What source they can go to for? The remission of their sins. As opposed to the law of Moses. So, they will know what source they may look for the remission of their sins. And then, now back to 23. For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ, to be reconciled to Christ. Oh wait, stop. Let me stop for a second, Mr. Stay standing up, sister. Both of you. For a second. Both sister. Yeah, you too. Both of you too. That's right. There you go. Okay. Before we finish, what's happening next week? 
<laughs> yes, you, they, they, these these guys are both going home, and and sister, you're going to, back to Australia, and it's going to be hot. And you've been serving for how long? Eighteen months. Long and hard, and, and we love her. Okay, and sister, you're going home to the frozen north of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They are going north, and they are going way, way south, which is then north, I guess. Again. Thank you for your sister, for your service, sister, sister service. Thank you. Okay. You want? Okay. So we labor diligently, as you guys have been doing. To persuade our children that they may know be reconciled to Christ. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. After all we can do. Tell me the, tell me the struggle that has come as we've tried to reconcile this verse. Why is why has this caused pain? How come? We feel like we never can do enough. We never can do enough. Where's that where, where's that moment where I've done enough? Sometimes never. Okay, yeah. What about the misconception that many other faiths have that you're just saved by grace and that it doesn't require anything on our part? We leave off that everything after the comma. We're saved by grace, grace. period. And, and, and consequently, we as members of the church think we don't believe in grace, which is not true. That's right. That's right. We, we, they believe in grace. We believe in works. And I, I think we've gotten, we're getting better. We're maturing as a church in terms of that. But here's the struggle, and I hear it in my office, and I and I hear it when I speak in relief societies all over. For whatever reason, the guys t- tend to get this better. Oh yeah, yeah, we got it. <laughs> Sisters struggle with this one. Why? Doesn't it require both works and grace? It does. But but the question is, where does grace kick in versus the works and the obedience that we do? Present. It is after. It is by grace that we are saved beyond all we can do. How about? How about? Let me put another possibility on there. In spite. But I think grace. My own personal interpretation of this is covers all of that. If we can do this much, grace covers us. If we can do this much, yeah, grace covers us. It is. All that we can do, but it's a tiny amount. Not just grace covers all of us. Yeah. So, so the question comes, and I, I, I always call this the doctrine of the gap theology. You know, the gap theology says, I do everything that I can, and then the Savior makes up the difference. And that's after all I can do. And, and the struggle with that is... At what point have I done all I can do so that the Savior fills in the gap? Yeah, Kimberly? It's the, the Brad Wilcox talk that has become so famous, so viral. Talking about the piano lessons was so helpful to me that when you give your children piano lessons and you pay for their piano lessons, you don't ever expect your children to literally pay you back. Right. But you do expect them to practice. So there are things that they are doing that they're doing them for different reasons. They're not doing it to earn grace. Right. Like he says, they're doing it to learn heaven. 
Because isn't that the problem with if we picture this simply as I do everything everything I can and the Savior makes up the difference, we're <clears> saying I've kind of, at least I can earn this part. I earned I earned what little part I did. Well and the downside of that is that's giving us credit for part of part of it and we have no credit. No, we don't. <laughs> it's all right, so so let me quote from uh, Brad. Yeah. Yeah. One of the talks that really rattled me when I was in college, going back to the patron saint of BYU, Hugh Nibley wrote a, wrote a wonderful talk called Work We Must, But the Lunch is Free. And if you, ever want, if you want to read something very, very powerful, Work We Must, But the Lunch is Free. And he talks about the doctrine of the lunch. Specifically mentioning... That Satan really believes that we can have anything we want, and there's and, and he will provide the lunch, and he, and what Hugh was trying to say was no, sorry, lunch is free. We're supposed to work. Well, it's not by World War II soldiers. There's no such thing as a free lunch, sir. That's true. <laughs> Except in this case, as as far as the world is concerned, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? That's correct. Until we start talking about grace. Let uh, Brother Wilcox explain. A uh, young BYU student approached Wilcox, uh, struggling to grasp the purpose of grace. She was concerned that her best efforts to keep God's commandments weren't enough to warrant Christ's grace filling the rest of the gap between herself and God. It's at that point that says, okay, what, what does it take for me to get an A? Where, where have I done enough to finally get the A? Do I need extra credit? Do I need to like cram a little bit more? Tell me exactly what I need to do so, so that I can earn my A. So that I can earn His grace. Um, Wilcox remembers drawing two dots representing God and ourselves. He asked the young woman to draw a line indicating how much was our responsibility, which she did. Said Wilcox, the truth is there is no line. Jesus filled the whole gap. There's no gap. There's just him. He didn't pay. He didn't pay at all except a few coins. He paid our debt in full. The young woman was surprised. Um, that is one of the one of the talks that, and one of the books I've loved forever is Believing Christ. 
and the, and the parable of the bicycle. And I think, I think Stephen Robinson, were you to write it again today, would probably alter that just a little bit. Because you did get the sense that says, remember the, the parable of the bicycle where the little girl wants the bicycle and he loves her and he cares about her. And, and she's able to save like a buck and a half and the bicycle costs a hundred bucks. And you still have this sense that he says, well, give me all you got and then I will go buy the bicycle because I love her. Okay? Well, sometimes that's been misconstrued to say, for each one of us, there is a line where we have done everything that we can, and then he takes it from there, no matter how big the gap is. And I think what he's saying is there's no coins. Because even the part that, we, even our obedience, we are, we are upheld by the, as, as Elder Bednar says, we're upheld by grace. It's the enabling power of grace that got us to do the things we need to do in the first place. There's no line, there's no gap. Yeah. Yeah. In in a sense, if you kind of picture, uh, I've done it this way, and I guess I could have done a slide on this. I've always pictured like, okay, there's three degrees of glory, right? And we've got the telestial, and we have the terrestrial, and the celestial. The purpose of keeping the commandments. Why do we keep the commandments? Do they keep the commandments in the telestial? No. 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 But they get a they get a nice glory. Whoa, that's nice. Okay. Do they keep the commandments in the terrestrial kingdom? A little bit. So. Mostly. Even a lot. Why do they keep the commandments? In the terrestrial kingdom. Because they're good people. Because uh, good people, oh, there's a reward. Or I'm supposed to. I'm very obedient. Obe- there are going to be a lot of obedient people in the terrestrial kingdom. <laughs> yeah. Why do people keep the commandments as we as we get a celestial mindset? Why do we keep the commandments? Because we love God. We, we're still keeping a lot of the commandments, but there, our, 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 as, as we change, as we're transformed into celestial people, the reason we obey begins to alter. And, it's, and it comes from a base of love. Yeah. Yeah. 
grace was how we were able to do what little bit we did do in the first place. So grace was already present. Yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Could it also be um, our gratitude? Um, grace is already lifting in, us and strengthening yeah. us. So our works are our gratitude for his gifts. One of the reasons we obey, we love God, and so out of a sense of gratitude we obey. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's it. Yeah. All right. If grace is the reason why we've done what we've done. And the power behind it. Then what about our own personal decisions? Ah. Where does How does that fit in? Because we could decide, no, I don't want to do that. No, we could. We could reject the gift, right? He's right. given us these gifts, and we could say, no, I don't want to accept that. That's why I love the idea the Savior says, I stand at the door and knock, basically with my grace, but you've got to let me in. You've got to let me do things for you. This is why we have to surrender to, to Him. Yeah. I, I think uh, part of doing all we can do is, as we live our lives, we need to put the atonement to use. I think I didn't understand that not only is the atonement meant to help us repent of our sins, but it's also to help us with our suffering and pain. And, for instance, that someone who is sexually molested... Um, Heavenly Father would not allow forgiveness to the perpetrator and not want to the person who had been... To completely heal. Sure. See, a lot lot of times in those kind of cases we say, okay, the atonement is is kind... That is is the gap filler. And what I'm going to do is that I'm going to do everything that I can over here and I'll get to a point and then when I can't do any more, now I can reach over and I can grab the atonement... And it's going to come in, and it it's the it's the step ladder that gets me the rest of the way. And we and we forget as we were just saying. Wait a minute, no. When did the atonement kick in here? The minute that we accepted him at all. It, 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 it's, it's from the very beginning. Every step up the run, the grace and the atonement was already active in our life. It isn't like it's the it's the last little bit that gets us there. Yeah. Well, and the atonement was there. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's the concept of not accepting the gift. Is when we go out and sin, we are rejecting. The yeah, gift. he done did it already. He's already paid for it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's why one of my favorite songs. You know, what, what, how many drops of blood were shed for me? Well, all of them. You know, it isn't. Or, or saying, well, I don't want to. I don't want to sin because I'm going to cause more drops of blood from him, or I'm going to cause him more pain. Uh, done. He already done did that. You know it. So th- that's why this concept, especially if you have any perfectionistic tendencies, is a bit of a struggle. To say, well, I want to be able to kind of do what I'm supposed to do, and then I will beat myself up because I didn't. And he says, no, grace kicks in from the very beginning. So that's why you know when we talk to our Christian brothers and sisters and say, do you guys believe in grace? Darn right. We are saved by. Grace. Period. Oh, by the way, in spite of all we can do, repent we must, obey we must, ordinances need to be lived, ordinances need to be kept, we need to do everything that He's asked us to do, but we're saved by grace. Does that that make sense? Have I pounded that hard enough? I just think it's one of those things that we struggle with a lot. And, And I have to tell you, in my office... This is a topic that comes up quite a bit. That's, maybe that's why it is that I kind of get on top of this a little bit. Because I watch, I watch it struggle. 
And this is the verse that gets quoted to me a lot. Well, I have a question. Yeah. Is that, uh, is that why other people think that they're allowed you know, uh, to be able to use religion or their faith um, to be able to do things that are inappropriate, though, and not nice to other people, or to be able to go, okay, I have grace. Yeah. You know, God's given me this grace. So I'm going to allow that to use it. I will use that as an excuse to kind of do whatever I want to do. Is that is that? I think that's a good point. A good struggle is that a lot of people struggle with being able. And it's their interpretation of what that means. Because I want to be able to use that grace properly. I don't want to. I want to use what you know. Well, you're you're here, aren't you? Yes, I know. Okay, then you you got it. But that's my point. Is is I want to be able to whatever I'm saying is going to be the proper thing. If I'm going to say it to someone else. Hold on to that idea, because we're going to get back to there in about a half hour. Okay. So you're, okay. <laughs> so the purpose of the call I can do. Yeah. Is what? <laughs> oh, yeah. What is the purpose of all we can do? To be the best person that we can be for the Savior. But, but can we become the best people we can? To what end? Okay. To, to be able to right to be able to serve. Yeah. Uh, for me personally, I keep feeling like it is me taking that agency that I've been given, the greatest gift that I've been given, and for me to willingly say, okay, I'm going to humble myself and my ego. Yep. And go with the Lord's will. Yep. I'm using my yes. to choose the Lord's will, and it's going to take me a lifetime to do that. So when I so when I begin here, and I'm going to accept the gift freely given. Now I'm saying to Him, take over, mold me, shape me, change me, take over from here. And that's now. And, and, and Nephi, in in his final sermon, both written and 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 spoken is going to address this very issue. What does, that, what does that path look like? What is the gate that gets you on the path? And what do you do after you get on, got on the path? Okay? Now, oh, we didn't finish. Brad, didn't we? Then he went on to explain with an analogy involving piano lessons. Mom pays the piano teacher because mom pays the debt in full. She can ask her child for something. What is it? Practice. Does the child's practice pay the piano teacher? No. Um, or does the practice repay mom? No. For paying for the piano's teacher. No, practicing is how the child shows appreciation for mom's incredible gift. And in fact, mom was going to say, okay, when you have learned how to play the piano, what do I want you to do with that gift? Share. Bless. When there's a need, that's right, there's a meeting, I want you to go. Yeah, I'll go do that. Exactly right. Okay? Uh, practicing is how the ch- child shows appreciation. Mom's joy is not found in getting repaid. Mom's joy is found in the music that is provided for other people, for the rest of her children. Okay? Alright. 
Let's see. All right. So that said, yeah. Let, let's let's finish his 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 journey because he's going to say, "Here's what's coming. I need you to understand that we believe in Christ. This is what believing in Christ looks like." And let me lay it out for you in language you cannot miss. So. Verse 31, or chapter 31. Here's where the, here's where the change comes. Up till, up till this point, we've been getting Nephi's Prashir. We were talking about his commentary on Scripture. Okay? Now, he's going to say, I, Nephi, make an end of my prophesying unto you, my beloved brethren. And this idea of who the beloved brethren he's talking to is a little bit murky. Because in a sense, everything he's done to this point, up to chapter the end of chapter 30, he's really writing primarily to us. This is what I taught my people. I need you to know what we believed in. This is what Isaiah means, down to the, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Now, I cannot write but a few words, which I know they're going to surely come to pass. Neither can I write but a few words of my brother Jacob. Okay? Now... Wherefore, the things which I have written, verse 2, say the few words which I must speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. Therefore, I shall speak unto you plainly. Now, this speak is a double word, in a sense. Who's he speaking to? His brothers. Yeah, here comes the public, well, here comes the public address. And he's speaking in a sense to us also because he's going to make sure that we have those, these words. Great prophets always are able to speak to their immediate audience in front of them and then their words also apply down the road. But I need you to see that he's specifically also speaking to the people right in front of him and that's going to have some really, real importance here in just a second. Okay. Uh, let's see. I will speak concerning the doctrine of Christ. Therefore, I shall speak unto you plainly, uh, uh, according to the plainness of my prophesying, for my soul delighteth in plainness. After this manner, the Lord God worketh unto the children of men, for it gives light unto the understanding. And then I love this word. Gives light unto the understanding. For he speaketh unto men and women, what? According to their language. For their understanding. Now, we hear the word language, where do we automatically go? Yeah. MTC, we're going to speak, you know, French, German, Swahili. But, but think more broadly. He's going to speak unto men and women in their own language. Yeah, and according to what the things that we would understand. Have you ever had that happen? Because I teach in the institute too. I think the it prepared them. The Holy Ghost is the medium that translates us, okay? One of the struggles sometimes I have with our church manuals, bless their heart, they are trying to prepare a gospel doctrine manual for people in Harvard and people in Brazil and people in Ghana 
And and here's this principle. Is that gonna do they have the same level of understanding? Do they have the same references to try and understand that? That's why if we're gonna go word by word, letter by letter out of a manual, we sometimes skip the people right in front of us, because we have to be able to do what? Speak their language. How, how many, on a regular basis, uh, teach the youth? Okay, look, hold hand, hands high. Okay, all right. Elaine, do you have to change your language? <laughs> how do you speak in the language of the youth? Yo, what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> but you got to know what? Yeah, how they learn. And what's important to them? Because that's how they're gonna. I remember times teaching seminary, and I would and I would prepare, and I'd have this great lesson ready to go, and and they had something kind of crazy happen at the high school the day before, and their brains weren't anywhere close to trying to learn about uh, Noah. All they could think about was what happened at the high school yesterday, and I remember a number of times just saying, "Here's the lesson I had prepared. Let's set it on the shelf." Talk to me. How you guys? How you doing? What's going on? Because their language was where they lived. It's it's what was going on. It was what was important to them. I know it's important to make sure that each individual is treated differently. That when you're speaking to somebody and you have to speak to them in their own language, yeah, and you have to understand what that language comes from, like you were saying, and each um, even within a family unit. You have to understand that each individual is different from that family unit. Shocking to me, uh, the other day, I, I'm walking through the grocery store, and I see this little three-year-old acting out and tearing stuff off the shelves and stuff like that. And the mother is going, well, you see, sweetheart, it is important that we be able to hold back and not be able to interrupt the other shoppers while it is that they're shopping. <laughs> and so it's important that we will wait until we get home in about a half hour and then when we get home in a half hour, then you're going to be able to play and have fun. So can you be a good, you be a good girl for me, sweetheart? Thank you. <laughs> she wasn't getting any of that. I'm going to talk lovingly as an adult to a three-year-old. You know why we do that? We're afraid of people calling CPS on us. Yeah, is that what it is? <laughs> it's exactly that's the only reason. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> when I went back to get my uh, finish my degree, it was surprising to me how things have changed and how there was so much about we're different learners. Yes. And and that's we're different places spiritually too. And so what we glean from reading the scriptures and being taught from the scriptures is going to be very different based on where we are spiritually. And, and part of what the, the spirit, as a teacher, as an instructor, if we're gonna if we're gonna do this, and again, uh, this makes more sense in just a second, we're gonna be able to speak with the tongue of angels, and the, and the tongue of angels that comes to everyone who's baptized says, "I'm gonna teach, I'm gonna give you a language by the power of the spirit that enables you to tailor what you're gonna say to the understanding of the people around you." Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Well, even though we may change our language to teach you, 
We're going to come to the steakhouse to, yeah. think it goes to, I just think it's fascinating again, when you look at this uh, the Lord God giveth light unto the understanding for he speaketh unto men and women according to their understanding now, and sometimes that we're changing that, sometimes the spirit is the translator but he's going to teach it in a way that we're going to hear it, and sometimes for some of us that means by experience some of it is going to be by reading talks some of it is going to be by feeling the Spirit. Some people get educated simply by sitting in the temple and being taught. And there's no words going on that you can see. We are all educated according to our understanding and according to our own learning. Yeah. Yeah. There, yes. gives you the calm and the peace to know to alter what you're going to say and how you're going to say it and the spirit does that with us okay now all right so for this next so so that said let me give you an example of that uh, that that came to me um, and if we go back because now he's about to start talking about baptism baptism is going to be the gate way in here, okay. Now, let's let's uh, uh, above verse six there. I put in Matthew three. Let's hop over to Matthew three for just a second to one that we know. Okay. Um, then cometh Jesus from Galilee uh, uh, to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Okay. Stop for a second. As Mormons, we look at baptism. What do we understand? We understand baptism, right? This is what happens. AJ, convert baptisms. We know how it works. Okay? But start with the understanding. Who is John teaching? In, in 30 AD. Who's he teaching? Observant Jews devout Jews that are leaving the city and they're going out to the Jordan to be taught by John. John has a group of disciples. Now, so let me ask you this then. Savior has not yet started his ministry. Remember, he's about six months behind 
John, okay? To an observant Jew in 30 AD, what in the world does baptism mean? What in the world is John doing in the wilderness immersing people in water? To an observant Jew in 30 AD. Enough that they're leaving the city to come out and be taught by him and to be immersed by him. See, we have our sensibilities. Oh, well, he was doing baptism. You know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm baptizing the Father, Son, and you know, we have our vision of how we view it. What was John doing? And to who and why? And how did they see that? Being washed clean. Okay, was there in Jewish tradition a tradition of being washed and cleansed? And ritual bathing. Yes, who's doing this in 30 AD being ritually washed? Come on, who's doing this? Who gets ritually washed? Only the priests. The priests. Only the priests. The priests. Where? In the, In the temple. temple. Before what? Before they do the ordinances and the sacrifices. Let me ask you again. What in the world is John doing out in the wilderness immersing people in ritual cleansing and washing? Okay, let, 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 me, let me solve this a little bit more I here. Thought more of them had to be had the ritual of washing. Okay. Anybody else doing that in in in, in uh, Israel at this moment in time? Anybody else? Yes. The Essenes at Qumran. This is a sect that is out there, and they are they are perform. And these are the baptismal, the the the, the immersing. Uh, things where they were doing cleansing so they would be ritually clean before they would do and teach and stuff like that. Okay, now let me ask you then. Why would they, why would the Essenes be doing it out in the desert out by the and they, they are, this is where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from is from these guys. How come they're doing it out in the wilderness as opposed to at the temple? Wouldn't it be considered blasphemy? It would be considered blasphemy, right? What are they doing? They're kind of doing temple work outside. That's what got Lehi in trouble with Laman and Lemuel. What are they doing? It is a it is a admission on their part that the priests that are doing it in the temple are not worthy. That the Sanhedrin that is in charge. Is, is, is a political appointee, which they were. They were being appointed by the Herodian family. For a large money, you could serve on the Sanhedrin. And even though it was still the temple and Jesus honored it as the temple, there's a large part of this that had gone dark, as, as Hugh Nibley calls it. It had gone apostate. So the Essenes were out there Doing, we're going to do the ritual cleanings the right way and we have to do it away from the temple. Okay, so, let me ask you again. Why was John the Baptist doing the ritual cleansing in the wilderness? Same thing, same reason. Now, the Essenes though, 
didn't get attacked by the Sanhedrin, didn't get, get attacked by the Sadducees. The Sadducees that, that were in charge of the money changing and they were getting rich and everything because they were the rich. But the, the Sadducees weren't sending people out there to try and squash or behead the Essenes. Why? Because they were a bunch of nut jobs. <laughs> they had crazy Essenes out there doing it and their little pretend uh, ritual immersions. Nobody's worried about the Essenes. They're just hanging around waiting for the end of the world, which they think is coming soon. What is John the Baptist saying to people? The Messiah is coming. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to baptize you with water. I'm cleansing you with water. But the real cleansing is going to be by fire. And he's coming. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Here he comes. Soon. Within days. Now is that a threat to the Sadducees? Oh man. Pharisees not so much. They're out in the, in the rural parts of the, that. This isn't a big deal. But the Sadducees, the rich inside the city, this is a threat to their livelihood, to the Sanhedrin. That's a real problem. That there's a guy out there. Disciples are flocking to him because there's a kingdom coming. Not just the end of the world, not just crazy nut jobs, but he's saying that there's one coming right away. And we're being cleansed in preparation of that. Yeah. This is pushing it. This is pushing it. This is this may incite a rebellion. This may be seen as a rebellion against Rome. Because this isn't just crazy nut jobs. This is something's about to occur here, and he has disciples, and he's and they're going through a ritual process to enter into something. We're not sure what. Okay? So let me, let me back up here then. Uh, okay. Uh, so he's got, So if we go back then to Matthew, uh, Jesus comes to him, John forbades him, I have need to be baptized of thee. I'm not worthy to be performing this. And we can spend a lot of time, we don't have time for about... Uh, worthiness versus being perfect. It's a whole separate topic. I don't, but I'm not worthy to do this. Uh, and you come unto me, and Jesus says, Suffer it to be so now, for it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This has to happen even for me. So, and he suffered him. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up and straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God <coughs> descending like what? Okay. God speaketh to men in their own language. What? Now, if, if literally, I've, I've, we've never completely known exactly the sign of the dove. What does it look like? Was this just symbolic of how the Holy Ghost descended? Was there an actual dove? Let me make a suggestion to you. Okay. Is this definitive? No, this is doctrine according to me. But here's what makes sense to me. What 
to the Jews, the disciples of John, standing around the water at the River Jordan, watching this process occur. If, if Jesus is going to be baptized and they're watching John's reaction, and immediately after Jesus comes up out of the water, if an actual dove was present and descended like that, would that mean anything to observant Jews standing around the water at the Sea of or at the River Jordan? Yeah. Did the dove have a symbol that they would recognize? Where did we first hear about doves in the Old Testament? Noah. Noah. Remember, he's got a raven and a dove, right? Raven goes out, he's gone. By the way, ravens kind of are like carrying animals, and if there's dead animals out there, ravens got somewhere to say he can go eat. He doesn't need to come back to the ark. But the dove, the dove goes out and comes back. Then he sends out the dove again, and the dove does what? Comes back with the olive branch. The sim, and, and that meant to Noah and everybody else, what? Things are coming. There is a promised land out there. It's close. He's bringing you back the symbolic sign that says some, where the, our, our journey is about over. The dove means peace. It means that the promise is about to be fulfilled. That it's coming, and here it is. Does the dove mean something? Oh, absolutely it does. And if they're standing in the water and a dove appears, do you think that's a symbol they'd recognize? Do you know that it's so present that even in... Uh, even in... Uh, uh, the, the idol worshiper part. Uh, th th this is one of the idol gods with the dove. The Baal worshippers. The, the symbol of the dove was so omnipresent that it wasn't just present in Judaism. It was present among Baal worshippers as well. Who then probably stole that from the original place of what the dove is supposed to mean. That, that rings a bell for us that now we're trusting. Now we sort of get it. Now we're on board and everything. So, wouldn't it make sense that if part of this process, if the when we talk about the fact that, uh, now back to 2 Nephi 31, uh, the Lamb of God being holy would need to be baptized uh, and He's going to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, verse 8, Therefore, when he was baptized, the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. May not make a whole lot of sense as much maybe to the people of Nephi, depending on how much they'd studied Noah, but to the Jews in 30 AD, got it. They're there. They, that, that, makes, that means a lot to them. And I love the sim symbolism of that then, because then if we're then going to receive the, the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove, what should that be saying to us about the purpose of the Holy Ghost? If we understand the, dumble, the dove sim symbology, if that's a word. S symbolism. Well, I 
kingdom come. The kingdom is coming. Uh, yeah. And it comes in the form of peace. Gently. Lovingly. Isn't that awesome? So, so now, so he's going to say he's going to be baptized. The Holy Ghost is sent in the form of a dove. It showeth unto the children of men. Now, this is, this is interesting language here. Listen cl closely what he's saying. It shows the straightness of the path, the narrowness of the gate by which they should enter. He having set an example for them. Then he's going to come down here and he's going to say, verse 13, if you want to sum up the gospel in one verse, here it is. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I know that ye shall follow the Son with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy, no deception, but with real intent, repenting of your sins, witnessing unto the Father that you're willing to take upon yourself the name of Christ by baptism, by following your Lord and Savior into the water, according to His word, you shall receive the Holy Ghost in the form of a dove. And when that happens, then cometh the baptism of fire. When the cleansing occurs. And the Holy Ghost, and then when that happens, an amazing thing occurs. Then you can do what? Speak with the tongue of angels. Now, picture, picture the symbolism that he's, he's giving us here. Picture that if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you've got a castle and that there's a narrow path to get you to here and here is the gate. Why is it a narrow gate? From a defensive standpoint, it's easier to defend against a, a narrow gate, right? Okay. Now, if I'm going to invite... Who, who is going to... Who says we can come into the castle? The gatekeeper. The gatekeeper, right? And he decides who comes in and who doesn't. And there is a sign of those that are willing to do things the gatekeeper's way. And the sign for us to be able to cross into the castle is baptism. That is the sign that we are, that we are, we are witnessing to him. We're willing to do it. You did it that way. We're doing it this way. We will cross into the into the castle gate by doing the same thing you do. And it's an individual thing. That's why it's so narrow. Only one ah, can go in. So it may only one person at a time can individual. go in there. This is your okay. Now, when we cross inside of that, now we take on a couple of responsibilities. One, right? To, we now have to communicate the same way that they communicate inside the safety of of the hole of the castle, right? Who lives inside the, the safety of this thing? Who's crossed over into the boundary and who's in there? Angels. Both those that have lived, gone on, they become angels. And what do, what do angels say? Think back to what you know about the scriptures. In the scriptures, what kind of things do angels say? Fear not, Fear not is one of them. Don't be afraid. What's about to happen is very cool. You don't, don't be scared, Joseph Smith, but I got some cool stuff to tell you. It's okay. Don't be scared. Okay? Angels say that a lot. It'll be okay. What else do angels say? 
praises. Angels praise God a lot because they're so grateful. They fully appreciate and understand what He's done for them. They get it. And they can sing praises all day long because they're so grateful. Angels are grateful. Don't be afraid. Angels are grateful. Those are the two big ones I get. Now, they speak, though, by the power of the Holy Ghost, right? So what they say will be under the power of the Holy Ghost. How are we doing so far? And what he's saying to you, I want each one of you, and remember, here's Nephi looking at his people and also to us. I want you to cross through the gate. Do it the same way Jesus did. Be baptized. Once you do that, you're going to, once you get inside the gate, and the gatekeeper is going to fill you with fire. And then you're, you will be cleansed, you will be clean, and you will speak with the same language as everybody else inside here. You will speak with the tongue of angels. You'll speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. Pretty cool, huh? Now, how powerful is this? How powerful is what he's teaching? Look at what happened. This is the only place that we have, I think, recorded in Scripture, <coughs> other than maybe the first vision. Look at what happens here in declaring this doctrine. Verse 10. Follow thou me. And then look at 11. Remember, he's speaking to people and he's saying, And the Father said, Which Father? Heavenly Father. Said to who? To Nephi. Most likely. The Father said, Repent ye, repent ye, be baptized. And also the voice of the Son came unto me. So Nephi is saying to them, The Father said this to me, the Son said this to me. He that's baptized in my name, him, him the Father will give the Holy Ghost like unto me. You're going to get the sign of the dove. Wherefore, follow me and do the things which ye have seen me do. Meaning, be baptized. Enter into the gate. Now, to make sure that you get it, and that there's a little chiastic pattern. There's a repeating thing that, that's about to occur here. Father says, Son says. And then we get this whole, here's the, here's the heart of the matter. Verse 13, do this so that you can speak with the tongue of angels and praise Him and tell other people not to be afraid. Now, to make sure you got it, now watch what happens again. But behold, my, my beloved brethren, verse 14, thus came the voice of the Son unto me. By the way, did I tell you that Jesus was talking to me? <laughs> Let me remind you. The Son said unto me, here's His exact words. It wasn't just something I read. Here's what He said to me. After you've repented of your sins and witnessed, and then if you flake out and deny me, it'd be better off if you didn't. But verse 15, And I heard a voice from the Father. The Son is going to declare it, and the Father is the second witness. I had the Godhead 
testifying that you can speak with the tongue of angels. That's, there's the law of witnesses. The two witnesses saying you can have the tongue of angels. I heard the voice from the Father saying, Behold, the words of my beloved are true and faithful. He that endureth to the end, the same will be saved. Now, why is he doing all of this? Look at 17. Wherefore, do the things which I have told you, uh, I have seen your Lord and Redeemer should do. Oh, stop. They didn't just tell me, I'm Nephi. How do I know what Jesus did? I saw it in vision. And the Father told me and the Son told me this. Why am I doing all of this? Look. For, in verse 17, for this cause, what cause? So that His people will know what to do. For this cause, the cause of you guys being able to do the the stuff you're supposed to do. For this cause... They have been shown unto me. Why? That. The whole reason for all of this is. The whole reason for all of my preaching. Is, is comes right down to this line. That. Ye might know the gate by which ye should enter. The Father declared it. The Son declared it. I saw it for this purpose so that you would know what gate to enter. For the gate by which you should enter is repentance and baptism by water. And then cometh the remission of your sins by fire. By the Holy Ghost. And by the Holy Ghost. And then you're in the straight and narrow path which leadeth to eternal life. Okay, now, I want to finish with an idea. Um, Just make a suggestion to you. One of the things that happens in the interpretation of visions is that there are different layers of interpretive kind of things that are there. So let let me add one more layer to what I think is one of the great visions of all time, and that's the Tree of Life vision. And I'm amazed at just how... Just when I think I begin to understand it, I find another layer to it, another depth to this. And it is, and I think it's amazing. Okay? Listen to the language that's been, that he's talking about. Um, he talks about the gate, and, and then once you cross through the gate, then you're on the straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. And you wouldn't have come uh, this far if it weren't for the word of Christ. You must press forward with the steadfastness of Christ, having a perfect brightness of hope. And when you do, uh, this is the doctrine of Christ. Okay. What image do we have of people pressing forward on a narrow path and holding steadfastly? The tree of life. The rod of iron. The path. So here's my question to you. Where on this entire thing would you put the gate? Where does the gate go? Right before the tree. I used to think that. (laughs) Where? At the beginning. Mm -hmm. At the beginning. Because all the rest of the language about the narrow path and the pressing forward is all the things of the people that were on the path and holding on to the rod Already. 
So where's the gate? Probably at the beginning. I wouldn't think it'd be so easy to lose it there. <laughs> the it, it shouldn't be that easy, right? Okay, so hold on a sec. So, ready for this? Here's the kicker. Who's on? Who's holding on to the iron? Who are we looking at that is making their way across the, the down the iron rod towards the tree? Who are they? Members. Members that have already crossed through the gate. Now we go back and say, and you start thinking about, wait a minute, if these are all baptized members, some are losing their way. Now there is at the beginning, we know there's some that refuse to even start, right? Some re reject it right at the very beginning. I don't think those are baptized members. Laman and Lemuel says, no, we're not going. We're not even starting our... But everything that happens after that, going forward, all the way down there, I would suggest the gate is there and the path is after they have been baptized because now he's going to talk about pressing forward. And if you do that, you're going to be able to uh, find eternal life at the end of that. That's a scary comment. To me, it's right up there with the terrible math that Neil Maxwell talks about, the parable of the ten virgins. And he says you have the ten virgins, the wise and the foolish, and all ten are members of the church. Well, that's, that's frightening. That's 50%. But that just says a large group will be foolish, but they'll all be members. Well, this seems to be the same kind of thing. If they're all everybody on the rod is a member, wow. Well, now we're watching people after they've been baptized. That's I've got to go back and read it. I haven't done it. Yeah. Yesterday in my Sunday school class, I had a fourteen year old. There was a girl who shared an experience uh, from a girls' camp a couple of years ago, I think, where they had the activity was was this journey. And they blindfolded the girls and put their hand on the rod that they created and told them they needed to hang on regardless of what happened. Right. And, and then they told them to start walking, holding onto this rod, and they were blindfolded. And the girls said it was really scary because we didn't see anything. And, of course, they had people, you know, trying to pull them off, saying, oh, come over here, let's just do this and all this. But then the girl said at one point somebody grabbed her arm and literally pulled her off the rod, and she said, I was terrified. And I didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't know how to get back. They didn't tell them what they were going to do at the beginning. So, right. you know, they had to kind of figure it out as, as they went along. But she said, that's where the bishops were. You know how the bishops right, were? Right, right. And she said, that's where the bishops were. And, and it was the bishops and the leaders who were able to guide them back to the rod so they could hold on cool. again to make it through. Cool. And the fact that it, it was just so visual in my mind. I could picture this and, and her describing how she felt. And how grateful she was that her leaders were there to guide her back to the rod. And I just thought, that's what the gospel is that awesome? about. Let, 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 me, let me, in the time remaining, let, let, let me spin off of that. Some of you guys have heard me tell this story before, but let me just go ahead and tell it. It's perfect timing. So I think it gets to the heart of this. And, and some of you, there might even be people who were there for this. About ah, 15 years ago, I did that with a girls' camp. And, and we were out near Texoma, or not Texoma, out by Arkansas camp out there, okay? And I set up that rope maze uh, in around the trees for the, for the girls. And just before we were going to pull it off, it started to rain. And I had to take the rope down, and we had a gymnasium in there, and it had like uh, like the slide-out benches, like you have a basketball court, so they all slide out. And, and, I, and I set up the rope thing in and around pianos and chairs and tables. It wasn't nearly as good as out in the woods, but 
And then, and then I did one of my little patented things that I've done when I do, do these in the past. Um, I put a, a T-junction in it. And, one and, and it would head off to a dead end. And then the, and, and, but you didn't know when you started which one was the dead end and which one was. There was no way to know. Okay. Well, the dead end I ran up the, up the benches and tied it off and then the other one went over here. And I saw, and, and the, what the, the young women's leaders wanted was to teach unity. So rather than send them one by one, I sent them off in a group of four. And they could talk to each other while they were going. So they're a little clot of four girls moving their way down here. Okay? Well, the first little group is, is working their way through. and Oh, we're doing this. And then, then I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm not standing too far away from them. And the one girl goes, oh, there's two ways. And she can feel it. There's... Well, which one's right? I don't know. Okay, well, let's just try one. Okay. She says, okay, we're, I'm going to take the one on the right. Okay, so the little clot of girls goes off, and I know they're heading up the dead end. And, they, and as they're going, they start climbing up the stairs and up the benches to up to the top of there where I've got it tied off. Okay? And they got to the top, and the one girl goes, well, it doesn't go anywhere else. It's, it stops here. And... And I, I, I pulled myself back to the young women's leader and I said, you're about to learn something about these young women. This will be good. And, I, and I'm watching them. And the one girl up there, she's she got this four, and they're not sure where to go. And she goes, let's pray. <laughs> and they all knelt down and they started to pray at the top of these benches about which way they should go. And now my young women's leaders are freaking out. What do we do? How do we give them an answer? How, ah! And I said, and they started to go, let's go rescue them. And I said, no, I think I got this. Hold on. And I had them wait. And I very quietly crept up the stairs. And I got right up next to the one little girl that I was nearest to. And I said, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> and she goes, I got an answer. <laughs> I got an answer. It's the wrong way. Ellen. Oh, okay, so, okay, they all got up. Woo, we got an answer to prayer. They, they go back down there, they find, okay, we start up there. And they headed off on the other way, and we got to the end. And we had a great testimony meeting at the end of that event, I'll tell you. How nice it was to pray and have the Spirit whisper in their ear they were on the wrong path. You didn't know you were the answer. No, no. And, and in fact, from that day, I've always been really, I understand a little bit more about how the Holy Ghost feels like. If they're going to whisper, tell somebody and they follow. That's, that's kind of nice. Um, all right. Uh, we're, we're over time. Um, I, I just think this is, if, if we begin to take a look at this, the, Nephi is laying out an entire image of being on the straight and narrow path uh, after we've gone through the gate, what it takes to be in the gate. And then verse 30, or chapter 32 is, now I'm, you know what, we'll, we'll start on that briefly next week. Because, read verse 32, because they're going to say, now I'm perceiving that you're not sure what to do after you've gone through the gate. Now you don't know what to do next. And he's going to say, let me tell you what to do next. That's what 32 is. It's the completion of this whole imagery. Okay? Um, also, the, if you look at what this is, this is, this is power, powerful stuff. And if you'll kind of interpret it a little bit, it'll speak to you in your language. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.